Hello, my name is Adam Conover, and welcome to Humans Who Make Games, a long-form, intimate conversation with the people who make some of your favorite video games. And today we've got someone very special on the show. Her name is Anna McGill, and she is the narrative lead of a little game called Control. Now, if you haven't played Control, it was one of the biggest games of 2019, and one of the reasons it was such a smash hit was because of its story. This mysterious, dark, twisted story that constantly kept you guessing and felt like nothing we've ever seen in games or really in any other form of media. Well, Anna led the team responsible for that story, and she's also worked on such incredible story-driven games as Dishonored 2, Dishonored Death of the Outsider, and others. Now, story is really, really fascinating to me. It's a misunderstood part of games because it's often just treated like a movie, right? But narrative in video games is something much more complicated and something much more interesting. And as someone who actually writes for, you know, linear television myself, I've always been very, very curious about how these stories are told, what goes into them, and how the designer thinks about their interaction with the player. So with that in mind, I hope you enjoy this interview. Here's my conversation with Anna McGill. So Anna, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me here. I'm really excited to have our chat. We're talking to you from where? Where are you right now? I am in lovely Malmö, Sweden. Mal- Malmö, Sweden. Malmö, yes, right outside Copenhagen, which is actually in Denmark. So is, is that is that recent for you that move to Sweden? Um, I have been in Scandinavia for gosh, I guess uh, two and a half years now, but I have only been in Sweden for a year. Got it. And you're and you're in Sweden right now, working at Massive. Is that correct? Um, Massive Entertainment. Yes, I. They are one of the Ubisoft studios, part of that network. Got it. But you're Mm -hmm. best known, at least at the moment that I'm talking to you right (laughs) now, for working on Mm -hmm. Control, which just came out uh, last year. Um, Mm -hmm. When this comes out, it'll still have been last year. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Which, uh, I confess, I have not quite finished. I've gotten right to the final... Uh, battle, which overwhelmed me a little bit, and then I started watching, and oh. I was like, "Okay, maybe I don't need to watch the ending." And then on my prep for this interview, I started watching a YouTube video of the ending, and I was like, "Oh wait, this is a very interesting ending. I should probably just muscle through and, and defeat these last final hits." Um, but that game has gotten uh, really stood out for its writing more than anything, also for the design mm-hmm. and, and the gameplay, mm-hmm. of course. But um, people are really in love with that setting, with the story, all that. And and you were mm-hmm. the narrative lead on that. Is that correct? That is correct. I was the narrative lead. Um, yeah, it's the response to it has been gratifying because it was such a labor of love for all of us. Um, and I have said that about my last two projects, but it is true. Um, I moved halfway across the world to work on that game because I saw the pitch and absolutely fell in love with it. So it's exciting to me to see other people um, falling in love with what we were able to create from that. It means that we were successful. So. And so um, you you moved to Sweden for the, for that. Is that correct? I actually moved to Finland. I was living okay. in Helsinki when I was working on. I know it's confusing. I was uh, working for Remedy Entertainment um, and living in Helsinki when I was working on Control. 
And then once my part of the game wrapped up, I moved over here to Sweden to to work for Massive. Got it. Um, uh, and so as the narrative lead, what does that mm-hmm. mean? Wh- like when we're looking mm-hmm. at, again, you know, part of the point of this show is to sort of demystify what these teams right. look like and what the roles on them are. So when you're the narrative lead, wh- what do you uh, have supervision over? What do you feel responsible for on the game? Uh, it's different at every studio. Like I've, I've found that particularly the title narrative designer means something different every place I've, I've worked. You just never know what you're getting into. Um, but at Remedy, on Control, narrative lead meant that I was responsible for the story um, and how the, the lore and the story elements and the characters, um, every place that they touched anything in the game uh, was something that I had a say in and that I could use to tell my story. I mean, it was Sam Lake's vision uh, and a, a wonderful vision, um, but it was my responsibility to help realize that vision, and that mm-hmm. means making sure that um the the lore that people were receiving like the story of the oldest house and um the you know the the story of how certain people grew up in the house i'm trying not to give anything away there um <laughs> that we were conveying that that information in a way that players could understand and that was all pointing toward the conclusion uh, of the game so the story of the game i guess is what you could say um but Technically, in terms of responsibilities, that also means, you know, writing screenplays and writing a world Bible and um, helping prepare for recording sessions um, with scripts and wrangling a team of writers and talking to art to make sure that, you know, they got our vision, too. It's a lot of communication. Yeah. And I think, you know, as writers, (laughs) we're sort of naturally suited for that task. So it, it usually falls to us to do that. But it's making sure that everyone understands uh, what the story of the game is. Um, so yeah, and New Weird in particular, which is the genre we were working in, is such a, a hard to define slice of of literature that mm-hmm. uh, a lot of our job was trying to explain to people what exactly that was. <laughs> yeah, it's not horror. It's not fantasy. Like people tended to drift into Harry Potter territory sometimes. It was really tempting. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was getting them back on that that annihilation weirdness um, and keeping yeah. them on track. I was going to ask what defines new weird, and certainly annihilation. Uh, the the mm-hmm. novel, I would say, is I could mm-hmm. see the influence from that novel in the in the game, which I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, okay. how do you how do you define that genre? I've never heard that phrase before, actually. Um, I hadn't either until I started working on Control. Um, <laughs> You're defining it, it. Sounds like. Yeah, um well I it's, that was Sam Lake's influence definitely. I he he's like this is this is what we want to go for. This is the tone. Um and I would say the chief characteristic of New Weird is this feeling of unease. Mm-hmm. Like you kind of know what you're getting into with some of these other um genres like, you know, fantasy is going to have magic in it. Um and science fiction is going to have science and the explanation will involve those in some way. Mm-hmm. There'll be aliens in science fiction novels usually. Um, but the chief characteristic of New Weird is that you don't know what you're getting. It's something sort of unsettling and uneasy. It's not a, a clean answer. And it should leave you sort of with a lot of questions. Um, it should feel a little bit off. And you get that feeling from a lot of creepypasta on, mm-hmm. on the Internet where it makes you uncomfortable, but you're not entirely sure why. Right. Um, right. Yeah, so I that's that's new weird in my mind. I mean, there are a lot more specifications when you're getting into literature, but 
that's what we pulled out of it and incorporated into the game. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of, of Philip K. Dick as well, that you, yeah. <laughs> where you get this feeling, like the way I define his novels are like, you never know if mm-hmm. the people in the novel actually exist or right. if they're like what level of reality you're on or if, or if the whole reality is just going to dissolve and you're going to realize that there was some other substrate that everything was happening on and control has that has that similar feeling um, good <laughs> that's good that's, <laughs> that's exactly what we were going for we spent uh, days and days we would have these big like off-site um, summits where we would sit down and work out the the rules of the world and how things functioned, you know, and our sort of guiding principle was, you know, we're not going to explain all of this to the player, but we need to know what the answers to these things are so that it all makes sense. Mm. And so that you feel like you could get that answer if you just looked hard enough. Um, So there are answers there, but it's intriguing to me to see people trying to figure out like all their little red string puzzles that they have, you know, trying to connect the dots um, with their papers on the wall um, as they try to solve these mysteries. And that just comes from withholding information, mm-hmm. I think, and giving them that feeling that there's there's more there because there is, um, but not saying it. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about lately about how one of the things that makes narrative worlds the most intriguing is specifically what you don't know like a, mm-hmm. a, a a narrative especially in science fiction or or any of these genres that mm-hmm. answers every question that you have is almost by definition an unsatisfying one um right. but you know the fact that uh, I don't know, in the Lord of the Rings, there's like Gandalf the Grey and Sauron the White, and then some mm-hmm. other wizards that you only know the names of. You never find out who they are. That was like what right. intrigued me the most as a kid. And do you like look for those specific moments to find, like let's set up something that we will then leave a lacuna in that we don't ever fill? Um, Absolutely. Uh, there's a, a sort of philosophy in um, world building. Uh, I talked about this a bit earlier this year. Negative capability, um, mm. I think most people know it as the obscure background reference. Um, and that is something that you hint at but never actually show. Um, and I think that is sort of the core of really good world building. Um, the example I always give is um, when you meet Han Solo and you find out that, you know, he did the Kessel Run in however many parsecs, mm-hmm. right? Uh, there's a lot of world building in that one sentence. Like you learn a lot about the universities in from there. You never actually see it, at least not in that film. Um, but the image that it paints in your head of this place in the universe where there's this prestigious race that people care about and this cocky guy you just met won it. So that means that he really does have the fastest hunk of junk in the galaxy. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a really cool thing to to learn about and it's what you don't see of that the fact that they don't show the race and you don't know what's surrounding it you don't know why this is a big deal really i think those are the questions that really make it shine and that's why it lingers with people and there were a lot of places um particularly in control where we looked for those moments where we could suggest something and not actually show it um there's a reference to for example the city that is only in one letter, as far as I know. Mm. Um, and some people have latched onto that and been like, what does that mean? You know, what is the city? <laughs> um, and I have no idea what Remedy's plans are for that, so I don't want to say anything about it. But um, I, there's a very involved uh, actual place in my mind that that is connected to, um, and certainly in our documentation. So it's interesting. Yeah. Well, let me ask... 
this. Um, uh, this is not really where I expect this conversation to go, but I've something else <laughs> I've been thinking about, and so I'm really curious about mm-hmm. your perspective on it as a writer mm-hmm. and designer. Because, you know, when you watch fan culture, right, like fan culture on mm-hmm. YouTube, um, right. you know, I'm talking about the you know the game theory type videos, right? I don't mean that series right. specifically. I mean that type of genre of thing mm-hmm. where it sort of treats the fictional world as a real place that we can learn something about, and like if we just examine the source material well enough, we can find mm-hmm. out the truth about this real place, right? But for right. me, as a as you know, an artist myself, as someone who creates things, I'm like, well, there is there is no place. This is mm-hmm. something that was created by other people, and you know, there's maybe a little bit more source material than what is actually in the game or the novel or the movie. Mm-hmm. But like, there's no reality to it, and it's like fu- mm-hmm. you know, fun to think about. But sometimes it feels like you know that fan obsession is digging into it as though there must be a secret to be uncovered, which is wonderful. That's the feeling you're trying to create. But at the same time, you're like, well, there actually isn't a secret, though, <laughs> because because the place doesn't exist, right? Like, Shh, and, don't say that. No, it's all real. Everyone. But I, I just want, there's like a tension there, right? Um, yeah. And, and so I'm just curious how you think about that, like, because um, control is going to be the kind of game that causes those things to happen, right? There's going to be an hour-long mm-hmm. YouTube video about how, oh, here's what's really going going on in control and like here's the truth Mm -hmm. of it and it's going to be you know someone spitting out something that you never intended to be in there how do you feel about that kind of material um i personally love it um and that was part of our intention i i think that stories are what the reader makes of them one of the things i love so much about games is that um You, particularly if it's like an MMO or something, you can go in and you can create the story alongside the player. It's an experience that you can have together. But what they make of that, what they bring to it, their own set of beliefs and experiences and and thoughts, that is just as valid for them as whatever it is that I created. I Mm. think there is an independent life that your creations have once they are out in the world and people do things with them. Um, I think one of my favorite sort of examples of that is, I don't know if you've seen it, um, the video of Tim Schafer and the crew at Double Fine watching someone speed run Psychonauts. Mm. I don't, um, I've not seen it. They're just cringing like their way through. The speedrunner's going, oh, and you guys left some artifacts here, and I had to learn how to get around those because sloppy level design. And they're all just like <laughs> really stiff. But you can see this genuine attempt on their part to understand that this is how this player has chosen to enjoy the game. This is what the game world is to this person, you know, and that's where they're finding their very sincere enjoyment. And that's what I see when people are engaging with um, control or particularly um, the Dishonored games, which I I also worked on. That world is very real to people. And I've read a Mm. ton of fan fiction that embroiders the the characters that we created in the world that we created. And that's what I, I want to see. That tells me that I have... Put something into their mind which has taken on a whole new life. It has bloomed into a form I never imagined. And I think that is equally valid for them, regardless of what my intent was. Now, it becomes a problem when they try to tell me that that's what I intended. <laughs> right. It's like, yeah, which has happened a few times. Oh, well, you meant to do this. I was like, well, no. <laughs> wasn't even a thought in my head. Yeah, there's a line between, I mean, fan fiction we all love um, as mm-hmm. a wonderful thing or that sort of fan engagement. 
Um, Mm -hmm. But then on the, you know, on the far end, you don't want someone saying, you know, well, no, but everybody knows that all Pixar movies are in the same universe. So let me tell you something, Pixar writer, you know, like, (laughs) no, that that's that's a very fun thing for you to spin out Mm -hmm. and have a great time Mm -hmm. to interact with the work. But it's not I don't know it's still it's still operating the level of fiction to some extent but that that's mm-hmm. a that's a really wonderful answer um I, I really love that um I, I want to ask about you said that uh well, you saw the pitch for the game um, yeah so how much of that you know world is part of a pitch that you saw and how much did you bring into it and what was it like? You know, obviously you contributed so much narratively, but what is it like coming into a project like that and, and adding to it? Um, so the pitch that I saw, um, they'd been working on it at that point, I think, for six months, I want to say. I think about six months. Um, so I just saw sort of a, a proposal. It's like, we're going to have this building. It's going to be filled with some strange things. Hand wave, hand wave. Um, <laughs> there's this agency called the FBC. And we have these characters um, and just sort of the the very earliest sort of prototype versions of what these characters are going to be and what the place was going to be like. Um, I will say that I think even at that early stage for Sam Lake, it was it was already there in his mind, like he'd already seen the complete vision. I have very seldom worked with a, a creative director director who had such a an unwavering vision of the game and it Mm. really helped us execute on it because he always knew exactly what the true north was the polaris if you will (laughs) of of the game um to to guide us through so starting with that um i you know i was sold immediately i just fell head over heels um for that game i actually had a tentative arrangement with another game company um and i had to go to them and be like thank you but i can not turn down this opportunity. I was just mm. that excited to work on what was P7 at that time. Wow. Um, and so I moved, I sold my stuff. I moved to Finland um, to wow. work for Remedy. You saw, like a, you saw like a PDF that made you move to Finland. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was a PowerPoint. Um, okay. <laughs> it had really beautiful uh, concept art, even at that stage. Wow. But um, yeah, they did a good job pitching it. But it was also, I looked at it and I thought, this is the game I've been waiting for. Mm. Um, it just hit that sweet spot for me perfectly. It's all the things that I really love. Um, it had, you know, Jesse Faden as the, the protagonist. I was very excited to work with her. Um, and I just, the whole concept of, of the oldest house, I just completely fell in love with. Um, and I couldn't not work on the game. So mm. um, I packed up, I moved there. And um, the first uh, few months were honestly just spent reading the documentation that they already had seeing the prototypes for the the gameplay and trying to figure out where they were going with it. Um, And then we started having these summits that I mentioned before to figure out how everything was going to fit together, what it was going to look like. Um, We had great art direction on it as well. Um, And I think sort of every team picked their their one thing that they were going to to run with and make sort of the theme of of their work. Um, And so brutalism was what the art team really um, delved into. Um, And I think that shows... Um, and we chose a new weird. And um, finding out how all of that fit together in an elegant way was sort of a challenge. Um, and we wanted it all to make really good sense and just sort of nag at you with, like, what the explanation for this could be. Like, if you walk into a room completely filled with sticky notes, why? Like, what's going on there? What what happened here? Right. And we wanted, we wanted, first of all, for you to ask that question. 
And second of all, for you to feel like there actually was an answer that made sense mm-hmm. if you could just somehow figure out what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had brought my occult library with me, which I just conveniently <laughs> happened to have. Years okay, you, of, were, of you were a good hire for this job, clearly. It was a perfect fit. Like, I honestly, like, I think they recognized right away that the game and I were just calling to each other. Um, so I started digging through there. I was reading things like the Golden Bough, like the history of witchcraft and superstition, um, rituals in, in different countries, um, just sort of the, the history of the obscure and the arcane. I was absolutely obsessed with the the Cuban sonic weapon mystery. I don't know if you know anything about that. Oh, was it? This was the thing where people in like the Cuban embassy were were getting mysteriously ill, losing their memory, and yeah, like having all these physical repercussions. Yeah, governments were denying it, and then there was supposedly a sonic weapon that another. I mean, anyway, it was a huge involved modern day unexplained. This is just a couple years ago. It's ongoing, actually. Yeah. It seems to never end. Every time I think they've, they've come up with an answer, they put out something that contradicts it. I'm like, it's still going on. There's still hope that this is weird. Um, but I was really obsessed with that and with things like that, like all the little dark corners of the Internet. Like the SCP site was a huge influence for our narrative designer, Avi Corhonen. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we took all of these little bits of, of weirdness from all over um, the world and all throughout history. And we tried to find places for them in the oldest house. We're like, this is a place where a lot of weird stuff has been happening for a really long time, um, and it's left a mark. And so it was mapping out how those things would fit into this environment, how what the, the rules of the house were, like why does it shift? What does it mean when a house shifts? If someone got sucked into a house shift, how long could they survive in the walls? I mean, these were like <laughs> questions that we were posing and trying to answer at, at that point. Um, so I would say that, that honestly, one of the writers said that um, control has my DNA. Um, and mm. I think that's a really great way of putting it. Um, that was my, my stamp on it was the weirdness. Um, but when you're working on such a big team, right, having mm-hmm. having your DNA in it, I think, is the goal of, of anyone who's, you know, doing creative mm-hmm. work. But mm-hmm. those teams are so huge. And, like, a, a lot of what you're describing, uh, I'm sorry, I, I always do this on this podcast, relate to my experience <laughs> in TV. Um, okay. a, a lot of what you're describing, you know, relates to me where I'm like, oh, yeah, you're, mm-hmm. you're uh, working with the other teams and you're sort of coming up with mm-hmm. the rules of it and you're setting it out and everything. Except mm-hmm. that, <clears throat> excuse me, except that there's also all these other teams that are supervising, like the mm-hmm. game design, right? right? right the the right. shooting mechanics, the level design, all these parts. Mm-hmm. And unlike in television or film where like, hey, the narrative comes first and then once we have a script, we just follow the script for the most part. Right. There's these mm-hmm. other competing elements. Well, I, I, maybe they're not necessarily competing, but there are other whole parts of the game that need to work separately, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, apart from the narrative. Uh, and I always thought that was a really interesting question because it's, you know, the, the story to some degree is not subordinate to those other things, but it's, it's you know, much more on a level playing field with those other elements mm-hmm. of the game. Um, and so how does, you know, I often wonder if there's tension there and how that plays out. Um, I think the best games that you see are the games where all of those elements are serving the narrative. Like I consider everything that you mentioned a narrative tool. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't have final say on those things, certainly. Like, a level designer can overrule me in the layout of a level. 
And I would defer to their experience because if they're objecting, they usually have a reason. But we're all trying to tell the same story. And um, as long as you keep that goal in mind, you end up with a game that really works and something that's truly harmonious. I think sometimes when you see elements that don't work, when they do feel like they're on separate tracks and they're not working, that's been a breakdown of communication on the team. It's Mm. been people having, you know, visions, I think, that were at odds with each other. Um, But I think this was one game where really everyone was completely passionate. They really, uh, I'll borrow a word from our narrative director here, they really grokked the the whole (laughs) ethos uh, of the house. Um, They really, everyone understood what we were trying to achieve, and there was really good communication. And I think that shows. I think when people are saying, oh, the world building is so great, the story is so great, what they're saying is, I, I am seeing it in every element of this game. It's coming through. Like, it all just makes sense with this with this world, with these characters, this is the way it had to be. Um, And that's when it's really working. I have worked on those projects where the communication wasn't as great or the vision wasn't as strong. And yeah, there there can be times when, you know, things get pretty heated in conference rooms. um, And people have to, to go their separate ways. But at the end of the day, we're all trying to do the same thing, which is to make a good game. Um, Yeah. And yeah, and it's a, it's an absolute pleasure Um, I've been kind of spoiled, I think, in my career to work on a lot of games that were very narrative heavy. Mm -hmm. So as a a writer, as a lead, I get to have a lot of say in what the final game is going to look like. Um, Whereas I think in a lot of other uh, genres and a lot of other games, that takes more of a backseat. I would probably have a hard time (laughs) reconciling myself to a, a, a lesser role. Um, Remedy in particular, um, when I was there at least, was a story-driven process. Like it was a a top-down, screenplay-driven process. Mm. Um, So, for example, the the demo we did for E3, um, I I wrote 14 different versions of the screenplay for that. Um, And at each stage, people were waiting for that screenplay to come through so they could know what needed to be done in the level and how things were going to flow. Um, obviously that can create a little bit of a bottleneck sometimes. So, uh, communication is really important. Yeah. I mean, I, I've heard, uh, not, I don't want to say horror stories, but I've, I've heard (laughs) accounts of, you know, other games where it's, oh, they, they, uh, designed the whole game first and they're like, okay, now the writer will, uh, write some stuff to, uh, make this game work. Um, and Mm -hmm. so the, so the fact that you're in situations where the writing gets done first must feel Mm -hmm. like a little bit of a luxury. It was, I when I was hiring um, Clay Murphy, who's now the senior writer there, um, and we were persuading him to, to come work for us, um, I said, at Remedy, writers are king. You are not going to find that anywhere else. And I, <laughs> I really stand by that. Um, it, was, it was really an extraordinary thing to have that much say in, in how the story played out and how the world looked and felt and, and moved. Um, and I, I have been on other game projects where, yeah, I'm just one writer in a core of writers and I get a, a, uh, a mission, let's say, that's been pre-written by someone else, usually the designer. And then it's my job to come in and make it sound pretty. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, make sure that, you know, the, the voices are in character and it's, you know, glossy and punchy and makes sense. Um, but I don't really have any say in how that mission flows. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's not very satisfying. <laughs> 
And I imagine that there are horror stories. I mean, have you played the game, um, The Writer Will Do Something? I actually, uh, uh, without meaning to quote it, yeah, the the sort of yeah. twine game, I have, yeah, yeah. A, 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 which is a uh, text mm-hmm. game that sort of dramatizes a writer horror story in a game development context. Exactly. If you are at the, the point in the game where you're trying to fix a problem with text, something has gone seriously wrong. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, yeah. I, ideally, you've made that connection, like you, you have a good mm-hmm. relationship with that mission designer mm-hmm. and you're able to have a meeting beforehand that says, how is this mission going to serve mm-hmm. our storyline and how will we express the story of the character via the mission design as well as simply the text or something? Exactly. <laughs> you you stole my lines there. Oh, I'm um, that's sorry. <laughs> ex- that's exactly how it works. Um yeah, I mean, because, you know, it's show, don't tell in writing. And, you know, in games, it's gameplay. So, you know, you want the things that the characters are doing to flow out of who they are. Mm-hmm. I'm about to use a really terrible dreaded phrase, but ludonarrative dissonance <laughs> that people talk about. That disconnection between story, like who the character is and what they're doing and what you're actually doing in the game yeah. can really be be jarring, yeah. um, you know, if, if that's what's taking place. So, yeah. You want to make sure that, you know, if you have a pacifist character, that they're not going on a killing spree. Um, yeah. <laughs> sometimes the only mechanic for gameplay is killing people, so it's tough. <laughs> if you uh, are doing a game about Batman, and, and one of the rules is Batman doesn't kill people, and but yeah. in the game Batman's running people over with cars, you've got a problem. <laughs> right? Maybe they're just really tough people <laughs> in <laughs> Really bouncy and rubbery. Um, yeah, I, agreed. And we got a little um, feedback like that about Billy Lurk um, in Dishonor and Death of the Outsider because she is someone who's sort of come to terms with her past and is trying to move past just being a killer for hire um, and finding a better life. And yet she spends, you know, you can play the game with her as just a berserk killer, you know, assassinating everyone she comes across. Um, but that's how you've chosen to play the game in our mind. So um, you don't have to play it that way. You can play it as Billy and, and make the choice not to kill those people. Mm-hmm. And you get different rewards on how you do it. But, um, yeah, I mean, you again, when I say that the game becomes the player's experience and they make of it what they want, that's a that's another way that it can happen. They can choose to do things with the character that you never intended for them to do. <laughs> I want to find out about, you know, how you came to where you are in the industry. Like, take me back. What are your first encounters with video games, you know, growing up? And, and when was your moment where you thought, hey, I, I think maybe this is something I can do? Or was there a moment at all? Um, There there was. Uh, so I think I am probably one of the, the first generations of kids um, where video games were just a fact of life, like mm. they existed. Like my, my parents did not grow up with video games. Um, and so for them, they still thought that they were kind of a waste of time and they were frivolous. And so my brother and I had to, uh, had to make a lot of our own games, um, mm. you know, not video games, but, you know, sort of entertain ourselves in ways that were not video games. So I didn't actually get into video games. I mean, I knew of them, like, you know, the Atari 2600, like, 
we played combat and um, asteroids, and <laughs> I used to go to the arcade and play Ms. Pac-Man, and, and I loved Qbert for some reason. Um, that was my game when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't until I was older. Um, I would play computer games on my own time, but I would never have considered myself a gamer, never. Like, that's not even... I was too cool for that back then. <laughs> I, I was bartending i was going to clubs and i thought i was very cool and i would never i didn't even talk about video games with people at that point um but i played them on my own i didn't know anyone else who played them because um, i never discussed them um but i was playing mist finally one day and yeah. uh, i made the and i still read voraciously um i'm a big reader and i've always been a reader and thought i would probably be something very frivolous like an artist or a writer but never really thought how that was going to work and then I was playing a video game one day, and I, it was missed, and I made the connection, the link, if you will, between <laughs> books and literature and video games and game worlds. And I thought, this is it. You know, this someone had to write this. Yeah. You know, there's a whole world here, and someone's behind it. And at that point, I mean, when Mist came out, I saw that you interviewed Rand Miller, by the way. I really enjoyed that. Um, oh, thank you. Conversation. Yeah, hero of mine as well. Um, and I, I thought, you know, this is something I want to do, but is there anyone actually doing this? Because at that point, it was mostly game designers who were also writing their own stories. Um, there weren't these dedicated just writer roles, and I didn't know how I could fit into that. So I sort of put it on a back shelf. Um, but I, I kept playing games on my own. Um, and I, re I remember one day I was playing a game, and it had really terrible dialogue, it was like really bad. Um, <laughs> do, do you remember what it was? I can, but I don't want to say. Okay, um, that's totally fair. It's someone you work with now probably designed this game, and so I understand yeah. why you wouldn't want to throw one of the fine designers that you currently know <laughs> under the bus because it was their work probably. I'm just messing yeah, around. And, yeah, and who knows? And like my standard for that was different. I think game standards for dialogue were different back then as yeah. well. So I, I have to sort of keep that in mind and keep that lens on it. But I remember thinking, you know, I could write crap like this. I could write crap better than this. <laughs> yeah. And then, like, it clicked. I'm like, I could write crap better than this, you know? <laughs> and that's when it really became, like, a dream for me. And I thought, you know, I just realized that I, I could do at least that well. Yeah. Um, and so I was bartending at the time. I left bartending, and I, um, I went back to school to study uh, writing. Um, and I majored in literature, and I minored in computer science. Um, and I worked as a QA tester um, throughout my time at school. I so, lucked into a job. So you and did. So when you, I you went to school in that way, knowing that, mm -hmm. like for literature and computer science, saying I want to write for games. Yes. Wow. Exactly. I got to pretty much design my own program at the school. I was very lucky. Mm. Um, and then I lucked into pretty much the only video game job in town. Um, it was a, a small town in Massachusetts, and there was one. AAA video game company there um, <laughs> called called Cyberlore, and they were making Playboy the Mansion. And I just my third I know <laughs> my third day in town. I met their QA lead who was on his way down to put an ad in the newspaper. This just to put this into perspective for you, put an ad in the paper looking for QA testers. And I'm like, I could test your game. And he's like, okay, sure. So that's how I, I got my, my first job. Um, wow. Um, and it, yeah. And Brenda Romero was the lead designer on that. So, you know, what a, a great start in the industry that yeah. was a real privilege to work with her. Um, 
I don't know how proud she is of that game anymore. I've seen her. <laughs> I, I've I, seen her. I remember seeing some kind of retrospective about that game, but I don't remember much mm-hmm. about it. But it, it was not a completely forgotten game. <laughs> um, it was what it was. Yeah. I, I mean, I think uh, none of us thought it was going to win game of the year or anything like that. It was a Sims style game. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I, I worked as a tester there and for um, a subcontractor for Hasbro. Um, the whole time I was in school and I graduated um, school working as a QA lead. So I was already in the industry while I was studying to be in the industry. But Mm. um, I wasn't doing what I wanted to do. I mean, I wanted to write and I would always put myself forward and be like, hey, if you need some writing done, I can do some writing. Um, And they (laughs) would just be like, sure, Anna, can you test that area for us, please? Um, (laughs) Yeah. Go, Go see if you can clip through some walls now. Yeah. But I, I did get to write some stuff here and there. And I think it's I know that there are going to be people who listen to this interview who who desperately want to know how they can make that leap. And all I can say is just keep putting yourself out there. Like I just kept making the offer and then finally they start started letting me do stuff. Mm. Um, I Littlest Pet Shop, the, the old Flash version, uh, was a game that I worked on and they had a, an in-game newspaper that I got to write stuff for. <laughs> Um, and that mo- I mean that turned into writing some ad copy for them, you know. And this, I mean, I it's silly, but three million people saw my little newspaper, you know, and yeah, that's yeah. nothing to sneeze at. Um, and it gave me a writing credit on my resume, which was the really important mm. thing. Um, and it helped me understand sort of the basics of interactive writing. It gave me a chance to sort of put my education to good use. Um, but then um, while I was doing great there, I got into a car accident. Uh, I was laid up in bed for a really long time. Mm. Um, I hurt my back really badly. And while I was lying there, I'm like, do I really want to write the, the newspaper in Lilith's <laughs> Pet Shop for the, the rest of my life? I mean, not that it wasn't wonderful, um, but I decided probably not. Um, maybe maybe it was time for a change. Sure. And so um, when I had mostly healed up, I picked up my entire life and I moved with no prospects, no friends, nothing, all the way across the country to Seattle uh, just to take my chances. It was the game center that I picked. It was either that or um, Los Angeles or Austin at the time. Mm. Those were the places I knew were big game hubs. So I chose Seattle because of the climate. <laughs> And uh, I lucked into a job testing for Nintendo, like, almost as soon as I got there. Um, Wow. So, yeah. Yep. Uh, So I worked at Nintendo for a little while doing testing and helping with the the game manuals. Because they don't actually do writing there. They do the writing in Kyoto. Mm -hmm. And then they have Treehouse where they sort of rewrite it. You were at Treehouse? Um, I was not at Treehouse. Okay. I was over in the main building. So, yeah, so I was doing more work with the the manuals and stuff than I I was doing any kind of writing or rewriting. So it was still not what I wanted to do. But it's still, um, that's kind of like stumbling into Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory in terms of just like working at Nintendo, uh, going, mm-hmm. showing up in Seattle and then immediately working at Nintendo. It must have been a little surreal. Uh, it was very surprising. <laughs> I think it all just happened so fast. Like, um, But it wasn't what I thought because, yeah, I did have this Willy Wonka, you know, I'm going to walk in and it's going to be like, you know, Super Mario World. (laughs) And, you know, you're testing in a situation like that where you're part of a big group and you're sort of doing bulk testing. um, And it's not the creative testing that I had been used to. 
So, um, yeah, it, it wasn't my dream job. Yeah. Um, okay, thank you for, for dispelling my illusions about it. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. It was totally the big room with the chocolate river and waterfall. I mean, <laughs> every day. I'm just not allowed to talk about it. I have to downplay it so people won't want to break in and go there. Um, <laughs> um, but after that, while I was working at Nintendo, um, I was still sort of applying to other places to see what I could find because I still wanted to write. Um, and I got a foot in the door at ArenaNet. Um, they needed a QA editor, um, which I think would, you would call a narrative editor at almost any other studio based on the work that I was doing. Mm. Um, and I leaped at the chance. Um, I, I went and I worked for them. Those were some of the, the happiest days of my career, honestly, at um, the in-house QA at ArenaNet. It was really great people. It was the early part of the game because um, that was in development for five years. What, what game was it? Uh, Guild Wars 2? Of course. Yeah. I say that. Of course, of course. Yeah, Guild Wars, I know all about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that little game, yeah. Um, (laughs) So when I came on, we were still doing fun stuff. Like, they were still building the world. There were only, I think, 11 people on the the entire QA team when I started. So we really got to do a lot of um, amazing and fun stuff, and I got to really work intimately with the designers on the missions that they were writing, and it was fantastic experience for me. Um, and then um, when they started staffing up the, the writing team for, that was on actually Guild Wars. And then when they were staffing up the writing team for Guild Wars 2, um, they pulled me up and I got to, to actually start writing for a video game. Yeah. And that was my big break. Um, wow. and, and that also came from raising my hand the whole time and saying, hey, I would really like to write. Um, I can write. I'm really good. You just have to <laughs> let me show you. Um, and they believed me. Um, and then, then I actually had to do it, which was the scary part. Um, but yeah, so I was there for almost three years. And then when the game shipped, uh, I started looking around because it had been three years. And I'm like, okay, I'm a writer now. You know, let's see what I yeah. can do. Um, but it's not easy when you're just starting out to find gigs. And I, I sent out a lot of resumes and I heard a lot of no's or I heard nothing at all, which I think is pretty standard. Yeah. Um, and I just started writing, you know, companies that weren't hiring just sort of to see, you know, to introduce myself um, and see if they had anything. And I actually got a response from a company called Airtight Games. Um, and uh, they were working on a project with Square Enix. And they're like, they hadn't advertised or anything. Um, but I went in and I interviewed for a writing position there. And I thought we hit it off really well. I liked the writers. I liked the project. Everything seemed really cool. Um, and things were looking great. And hmm. then I got an email from them saying, thanks, um, but no thanks. Hmm. Uh, and it was the nicest rejection email I've, I've ever had. <laughs> and I'm like, I've had acceptance letters that weren't that nice. And I was just like, well, I mean, thanks for being gentle. But I was a little disappointed. Um, yeah. But then a, cu- a couple of weeks later, they contacted me again, and they're like, you know, we didn't think you were right for this writer role, but we've created this narrative design role for you. So wow, work for us. Yeah. Um. And that was based off of my uh, writing test that I did for them. Wow. Um, so they felt that the narrative design part of it was really strong. Wow. So, um. Yeah. So I went and I worked with them. Uh, there were two teams there. Kim Swift was leading the trophy team. Oh, on, cool. Yeah, on the other side of the studio. And um, then there was my side, and we were working on Murdered, Soul Suspect. Um, and it was my first time working for, like, a, a, a client, I guess, you know, where Square Enix had the vision for the game, and we were just there trying to help them realize it. But mm-hmm. it was a great experience learning that. Um, 
Certainly they know what they're doing. They know how to make a game. <laughs> and you like, I, I mean, that must have felt like a big moment for you to have people create a role for you to really want to bring you in. Just, All right. Hey, we'll promote Annika. She keeps raising her hand and because she's nice yeah. enough. But then for folks to be like, no, 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 we actually really want you on this team. And we've we've made it work in order to get mm -hmm. you in here. It was it was wonderful. Yeah, it was it was really one of those moments where I thought, I think I can actually do this. Like, maybe I'm actually good. You know, yeah. it, it was I, I know that sounds like a weird thing, but I think you must know imposter syndrome just plagues the creative yeah. industry. Um, we all feel it at in our dark moments. And I think in the beginning, especially when I was first trying to prove myself, I you know, everyone around me seems so talented and so experienced and so together. And I'm like, what am I bringing that they're not bringing? And it was trying to still trying to find my game writing voice at that point and who I was um, as a as a creator on on a video game. And um, yeah, I hadn't quite settled into it at that point, but that was the start for me of going. I do have a voice. I do have something to say, and people like the way I'm doing it. So okay, here's a start. <laughs> <laughs> and how did you? Uh, find your way to the, from there to like working on the Dishonor games. I know that's a little bit of a jump, but no, I, I gotcha. Um, well, it was just always at the end of every project, wanting to move on to something new. I yeah. get a little burned out at the end of a project, and I feel like okay, I'm done with that now. You know, I want to move on to some creative freshness. You want a new um, challenge. You want a new exactly. Uh, you want to be in a new context, and and that's wonderful. Exactly. So I'm I that excites me. So I just kept moving from place to place. Um, and I a friend of mine that I had met on Twitter, actually, um, Sashka Duval had mentioned that they were looking for writers for the next Dishonored game. So I did a writing test for them um, and they liked it and they brought me on. And so I ended up working for Arcane Leon mm. with uh, Sashka and Harvey and Hazel Montfortan on the on the second game you worked on. Um, it was the DLC for Dishonored 2, so it was Dishonored Death of the Outsider. Ah, got it. I only ever played Dishonored 1. I need to... It's okay. It's on my list. No, I'm really sorry, Anna. I, I'm, I apologize to you that I haven't played the game. Uh, no, because I, I know that... I like Dishonored I like Dishonored 1 fine. A lot of people did mm -hmm. as well, but but Death of the Outsider is like... Uh, that's the one that I hear spoken about in the in the highest terms mm -hmm. a lot. Um Oh, that's nice. I didn't know that. That's wonderful to hear. Yeah. Well, I listen to a lot of uh, podcasts. <laughs> I oh, to a okay. lot of gaming podcasts where people talk about these things. But um, uh, yeah, did you feel that when you came in, hey, I'm going to put my stamp on this and uh, change it a little bit? Or uh, yeah, what mm. was that? What was that like coming into a, a successful franchise? So I had never played the Dishonored games before I took that writing test. So I crammed the games um, like I really had a very short window and just absorbed as much of the lore as I could and then just sort of regurgitated it for the test. And, and game and, writing is I'm sorry. Oh, I was going to say, just tell me a little bit more about that test, because um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious about it. Like what what is what does the test look like? And you said you, had, you have to play the games like in a day or something like that. And then and then what are you writing um, for the test? I'm um, so. Writing tests are, I think, are, are pretty standard. I know that it's a it's a point of dispute in the industry. Um, should you get paid for them? Should you do them? I think of them as long as they're not unreasonably long as being sort of like your audition. 
Mm-hmm. Um, because they can look at your resume and see that you have experience. They can look at your writing samples and see that, you know, you know how to write. But what they don't know is if you can write in the style of their game. Um, and so that's what you're trying to prove with your writing test is that I can write for your franchise. I understand it. I can get this voice down that you want. And that's what being a game writer is. It's not putting my voice into the game. It's making their voice mine for the duration of the game. And, um, so. and it's actually very similar to what's done in TV, and it's similarly contentious mm-hmm. in TV of, of you know, is it kosher to ask people to do some sample writing for free? Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. and it's over the past couple of years that those sort of standards have been relaxed in order to have mm-hmm. it, there be less of a free work issue going on. But right. um, like, I'm curious in game writing, what are you actually writing? Are you are you writing some sample mission dialogue? Like, Bruce, you got to go. What, the power <laughs> converter needs to be switched back on. But there's some zombies down there. Or are you writing like You're a lore hired. fragment yeah. or what? <laughs> Um, I, I think it depends. Um, I've seen the the full range of assignments for these uh, tests. I've seen things as simple as um, write a mission in you know in any style of, of your choice that does these three things, um, and that's like the low end, and like a page to two pages, mm. and that's all they want. Um, or you know, give us you know ten different barks for a character that has these traits. Um, the high end that I think is really unreasonable. And um, I, if I got a test like that now, I would just refuse to do it. It's basically design and write an entire mission mm. um, from, from start to finish, give it two different endings, have some branching dialogue, create the characters and their bios that will be in this. Uh, let us know who these NPCs are. Tell us what assets, I mean, the whole thing. You're basically wow. just designing and creating an entire mission. And they're usually timed. <laughs> yeah, um, so oh, wow. You, yeah. Um, Usually two days is pretty standard for like a, a normal writing test. And that's mm-hmm. enough time if it's not unreasonable. Um, but one of those, like sometimes they'll give you a week and it's like, you've just asked for a, a week's worth of free work from me. Yeah. I yeah. can't, I can't do that. Yeah. Um, but I did that stuff when I was younger. Um, when I was still trying to prove myself, I did those. That is so similar to in TV mm-hmm. when people are like, hey, write a whole, uh, for my show, our sample used to be write a, you know, for submissions, mm-hmm. write, write the first act of a show. And then we realized yeah. that was too much, um, that yeah. we were asking too much of folks. Um, uh, and it's, it's strange because people have that mentality of, well, I had to do this to get my gig. And so yeah. many people want this gig. Like there should be a little bit of, uh, a difficulty component to it just to sort of serve as a screener. And then, mm-hmm. uh, I, you know, I, I fell for that way of thinking for a while before I realized, no, this is just like uh, kind of abusive for the sake of it. <laughs> there are yeah. easier ways to figure out who's the best person for the job that don't take so much of people's time unpaid. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I don't understand those people who are like, I had it hard, so therefore everyone else has to have it hard, too. It's like, I want to make things better for the people who come after me. Yeah. That's my goal. Amen. Um, But but yeah, I like when I'm when I'm hiring and I do a, a lot of hiring um, these days, what I'm looking for is someone who can take direction. Like what mm-hmm. I'm really looking for, like I know they can they can write if I look at their samples. I can see that they can write. Um, by the time they get to me, what I need to know is, are they going to listen to my notes? You know, if I give them feedback, how are they going to take that? Um, if I give them instructions, do they know how to follow them? You know, that's really what I'm looking for. Because you can work with anyone if they just have the the talent. Um, like, again, Clay Murphy, the, the writer on Remedy, we interviewed um, dozens of people. I think we looked at like 
200 resumes and each of those had three writing samples with them mm-hmm. you know so we went through a lot of people and we ended up hiring him just because of his raw talent and because he delivered exactly what we wanted on that writing test like to a t so yeah well let me um, uh broaden the the conversation to this a little bit because there's you know obviously uh a whole lot of conversation that I see as a fan of the industry about working conditions in the gaming industry and and mm. uh, uh, how onerous you know some folks' jobs are, uh, how quickly people burn out of the industry, how that's yeah. bad for the uh, crunch. Obviously, I've talked about that in the past um, with uh, other folks on the show. I'm just curious about you know your perspective uh, on those issues, especially as someone who, like you say, is hiring and hiring and managing. Managing folks. I mean, uh, mm. yeah. Is, what are the what are the difficulties there that you see, and how do you try to address them? So I have had severe burnout in my career. I actually ended up having a nervous breakdown um, coming off of a project because I did not even understand how burned out I was, mm. um, and I had to take a break from the industry for a couple of years and sort of get wow. myself back together again. Um, but I did make the choice to come back because this is what I love doing. But as someone who has been through that, I absolutely feel very strongly about not letting that happen to anyone I know. And certainly no one on my team is is ever going to do that while I just stand by. So um, one of the reasons I love working here at Massive um, is that they walk the walk of work-life balance. A lot of other studios um, I know of have, they they talk a good line about it. Like, oh yeah, sure, you know, we treat our employees great. But at the end of the day, people are still crunching. You know, I've had those over a hundred hour weeks, you know, where I, I've had to put in the time to get something done and it's it's hellish. Um, but here they absolutely if you stay too long, they come around, the managers come around, they're like, Go home, you know, go talk mm-hmm. to your family, go see a movie, go have dinner, go do stuff. Uh, this is Sweden. They're pretty generous with uh, time <laughs> off here, right. with paid time off. There it's like mandatory, like a minimum of three weeks off you have to take in the wow. summertime. Like by by law, like they have to give you that, um, you know, and we get a lot of time off around the holidays. Um, but it's not just that it's it's looking out for people like we have a burnout test that you have to take here. Um, a test. You self, yeah. Self test yourself to if you're starting to feel it and just sort of see where you are in the scale and see if you need help. They have a program to help people who are starting to feel burned out. Um, so wow. I, it's something that they are proactively policing and trying to take care of, at least on my project, you know, which is all I, I know. So um, it's it's really nice. One of the reasons I'm I'm here and I'm thinking I'm thinking of buying an apartment um, is <laughs> and settling down for the first time in my life. This person who leaves after the end of, of yeah. the project um, is because I have I've seldom encountered a studio that that treats people as well as I've been treated here. And it's it's surprising because the horror stories are still happening out there. Yeah. You know, I, I, there's a lot of it and I, I wish more studios would follow the lead that, that Massive is showing here. I have friends right now, I tell them how things are here and then they tell me their horror story about how they haven't seen their husband in uh, three days Yeah, because they keep, they keep missing each other at, at home. And it's like, why is it that way? I don't understand. Yeah. Uh, you talked to, to Game Workers Unite as well. I, mm-hmm, I saw that. Mm-hmm. Um, they are awesome. And uh, I I really hope that there's a union here mm. um, in Sweden um, that we are part of and Massive knows about it and they're fine with it and they're working with them. Mm-hmm. Um, I really hope that becomes something in the States. Yeah. That people can, 
be treated better. I mean, I know that it's better in Hollywood, but this recent blow up with the, the WGA, I, like, I'm still trying to, to follow that whole drama and figure out what's going on with that. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I mean, because they've always been sort of our model, like, look how well Hollywood screenwriters get treated compared to yes. you know, how we get treated in the games industry. Um, but then that happened and we found out that they weren't actually being treated all that great uh, after. Yeah, so. I mean, I uh, you can uh, probably, some, if you're curious about this, you can like search, uh, I don't know, WGA uh, mm-hmm. uh, agency campaign. Uh, they mm-hmm. made a good explainer video about it a while ago. But yeah, I mean, the, mm-hmm. uh, the agencies have like consolidated so much power that they were, uh, you know, n- basically negotiating uh, deals that were packaged in such a way that they would often profit more than the writers would off of their creations um but yeah i mean the the fact is that like the purpose of a union is to like safeguard against that kind of practice and it's not like you set up a union and then you're set for life um or you're set for a century right um which Mm -hmm. is about how old you know writers guild has been around for we're getting close to a century now um yeah. But uh, that you have a mechanism with which to push back against that entrenched power and to fight for what you need. Yeah. So it requires exactly. constant maintenance because there's all these forces in the industry that are, you know, would love to and are constantly working to and are having some success at depressing writer salaries, um, yeah. you know, depressing writer ownership over their work and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, luckily we've got a we've got a strong union that can take a stand against it. Um, and that campaign on that issue is ongoing but uh mm-hmm. yeah i mean it's not <laughs> it's not perfect right like it was also yeah. it's can be contentious within the within the guild there isn't even unanimity on it but um yeah. there's a strong majority sense and um you know organizing can do a can do a lot of good and and mm-hmm. i really hope that we see more of that in the games industry as well at the very least uh, you know, the fact that there's a conversation about it and that people are, are aware that it's there's there's a consciousness rising that it's not OK <laughs> to treat yeah. people that way. What I find interesting is that we're we're having this conversation now and it is a revelation to some people mm-hmm. like it doesn't have to be this way. Um, but I, I feel that, you know, game writers, we've fought so hard just for recognition, just to be recognized as, you know, not just people who clean up someone else's text, but, you know, as as creators in our, our own right. And there has been that evolution from when I started in games and, you know, it wasn't even really a job. So for us to be taking the step now where we feel powerful enough to, to fight for our rights and to want a union and to say, hey, we're not going to tolerate bad treatment because we're worth more. I feel like the industry has grown up with me in mm-hmm. confidence throughout the trajectory of my career. So... Um, yeah, it's gratifying to be at this place. Hell yeah, that's really awesome. Yeah. Um, well, I really thank you for coming on the show and, and telling us about it and, and uh, giving us that perspective. And uh, I've really enjoyed your work and I'm looking forward to keep enjoying it in the future. Thanks, thanks so much for having me. It was fun talking to you. That's it for my conversation with Anna McGill. Thank you so much to her for coming on the show, and thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I want to thank our producer, Aristotle Acevedo. You can find me on social media at Adam Conover. You can follow me on Twitch at twitch.tv slash Adam Conover. And until next time, we'll see you next week on Humans Who Make Games.
A podcast. <clears throat> a podcast network.